Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Good morning, Grantham Church. I'm sure you have been blessed by one thing or another this morning. What a great service that we've had, and I want to thank the worship team for leading us, and the, the children's artwork, and Sandra for that testimony. Sandra, you're such an encouragement to me, and I know all of us in the room as well. We are continuing on our 12-week summer series called Saints and Sinners, and in this series we're looking at various biblical characters whose lives were messy and broken just like us. And through their stories we're seeing how God lovingly meets us where we are and works with us despite our past, our fledgling faith, our sin, our questions, our doubt, our complaints, as we're going to see today, and our age and our limitations. He's simply looking for people who will give him their heart and trust him with their life. And, and then in his grace, with our willingness to yield to his spirit, the Lord blesses us and works us into his grand story of redemption. So far in this series, we've reflected on the stories of Abraham, of Jacob, Moses, Rahab, Esther, Elijah, and last week we looked at David. This morning, we're going to look at the last Old Testament character in our Saints and Sinners series. That is, <coughs> excuse me, the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, in a sermon entitled, Being Faithful to God. Would you turn with me in your Bible to the book of Jeremiah? You can find that in the Old Testament and be ready to begin with me in chapter 1 in just a moment. The book of Jeremiah is 52 chapters. There's a lot there to cover, uh, and I'm going to try to summarize his story by walking us through key moments in his life and ministry. And when was that? When was Jeremiah's ministry? Where does Jeremiah fit in the Old Testament story? I've shown you this graphic before. I've just kind of zoomed in on it to what's relevant for us today. Jeremiah comes at the end of Israel's worldly kingdom project in the 7th century BC. Worldly kingdom project. Remember, uh, the people of Israel asked for a king. He gave them a king, uh, and that didn't go so well. This is the end of that worldly kingdom project. Uh, after all, God wanted to be their true king. The northern kingdom was wiped out by Assyria about a hundred years be before this because of her sin. So the northern kingdom is gone and the kingdom of Judah is left. Jerusalem is the capital of the kingdom of Judah and is fast approaching her demise as well. Take a look at this map and you can see sort of the context of where we are. After the rise and fall of Assyria, Babylon becomes the ruling empire and their king is 
Nebuchadnezzar. You've heard of that name before. Nebuchadnezzar is king of Babylon. So Babylon is directly to the east, as you can see on this map, and Egypt is to the south. Now Egypt is not as strong as they once were, say under Ramses II in the time of Moses and the Exodus, but they're still uh, a formidable foe there again to the south. And so look at that map. Judah is caught in the middle. Judah is caught in the middle. Now, you can't see it from the shading, but just find Jerusalem, and you can see where the kingdom of Judah is. So, Judah's caught in the middle, and you're going to see today some back and forth in trying to form alliances between these two uh, countries or empires to save their own skin. You, you recall that God said, don't do that. Don't form alliances, but this is the way that they're thinking. Uh, Babylon uh, is threatening, and it's going to become a major player in the story today. Jeremiah will proclaim that God is using Babylon to punish Israel and all of the other nations in the area for their sins. And of course, God also is going to promise that he's going to turn around and judge Babylon. And, and so God does this, and we see this a lot in the Old Testament. Whether it's Assyria, whether it's Babylon, God uses these empires to do his will and work, but also holds them accountable as well. So Jeremiah is going to tell Israel that they have a small window to repent, but exile is looming. So who is Jeremiah? Of all the Old Testament prophets, we know the most about Jeremiah. We know about his upbringing. Uh, about his calling, uh, the names of his enemies and his friends, and his faithfulness to God despite the relentless persecution that he'll endure because of his unpopular message. And we know that each time Jeremiah received a word from the Lord, he dictated this to Baruch, who is a friend and a scribe for Jeremiah. He wrote, he, he wrote this all down. And his most basic message was this. Just, Jeremiah's message was this. I'm just paraphrasing. Babylon is coming. The nation is going down because of her sins. Repent now and you might get to live, but it'll be in exile. It's a simple message, but as you can imagine, his ministry was difficult. I mean, just imagine how that would play out today in America. If you were proclaiming that sort of message, you would probably be perceived as being anti-America. And the same thing is happening with Jeremiah, that somehow he's perceived as being anti-Israel because he's speaking a word that people don't want to hear as they're listening to all of the false prophets. And so in a lot of ways, Jeremiah's ministry is going to foreshadow that of Jesus which I think we'll see pretty clearly today. So let's begin in Jeremiah chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. These are the words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests from the town of Anatoth in the land of Benjamin. Now Anatoth, uh, like a lot of prominent biblical characters, is, uh, is, is not that important a place. <laughs> You know, a lot of biblical characters come from really small rural towns, including Jesus. And Anatoth is like that. It's three miles northeast of Jerusalem. And Benjamin, as you see there, is a tribe known for having mighty warriors, but also priests. And Hilkiah, the father of Jeremiah, was a priest. And so Jeremiah is also being raised to be a priest. But he'll quickly throw off that 
calling for another calling, that is being a prophet. So Jeremiah's call in the prophetic ministry began, we believe, about 627 BC, and it's gonna last about 40 years. Verse two, the Lord Yahweh first gave messages to Jeremiah during the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now, Josiah, if you remember your Old Testament, is the grandson of the wicked Manasseh. Very bad king, uh, worst king that uh, Judah had ever seen. Josiah was a godly king who called his people to return to Yahweh. And his priests find the lost book of the law. That would be the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, That is the law given to the generation going into the promised land, right? And so Josiah's priests find the book of the law while they're renovating the temple. And Josiah leads a reform movement in Israel, but unfortunately doesn't last long. And so for here on out, by the way, I'm just going to refer to Judah as Israel, right? Just as God's people. But don't, don't confuse that with the northern kingdom. That's, that's gone already, as I said. Verse 3, Yahweh's messages continue throughout the reign of King Jehoiakim, jo- Josiah's son, until the 11th year of the reign of King Zedekiah, another of Josiah's sons. Uh, let me just add here that King Jehoiakim will align Israel with Egypt until Babylon defeats the Egyptians, and then he'll have Israel become a vassal of Babylon, a, a, a vassal, and, and forming a vassal treaty is like forming a covenant with another nation. It's to say that we'll reap the benefits of your nation as long as we pay your taxes and, and live according to your expectations. We'll get to maintain our way of life, right? But nevertheless, it's, it's a form of occupation. And so that's what King Jehoiakim is going to do um, with, with both Egypt and then Babylon. And he, they're going to pay tributes to Nebuchadnezzar. And this is going to all end in August of about 586, 587 BC, the 11th year the people of Jerusalem are taken away as captives. All right? Now, verse 4 through 10, let's look at verses 4 through 10. The Lord Yahweh gave me this message. This is to Jeremiah. Yahweh says, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Now, there's a whole message there, folks. Before you were born, I set you apart, and I appointed you as my prophet to the nations. Did you notice? Not just to Judah, not just to the people of God, but also to the nations. And Jeremiah will do that. We'll read later on his prophecies to all of the surrounding nations uh, around Israel. And he said, O sovereign Lord, I can't speak for you. I'm too young. Is this the first time we've heard someone say something like this? I'm not so good with words. Remember, (laughs) Moses said that. Jeremiah is saying, I'm too young for this job. You can't call me. Nobody's going to take me seriously. Hmm. Well, the Lord replied, don't say I'm too young, for you must go wherever I send you and say whatever I tell you, and don't be afraid of the people, for I will be with you and will protect you. I, Yahweh, have spoken. And then the Lord reached out and touched my mouth and said, 
Look, I have put my words in your mouth. Today I point you to stand up against nations and kingdoms. So you must uproot, tear down, destroy, overthrow. Others you must build up and plant. So a lot of Jeremiah's work is going to be deconstruction and also some construction with that. Now, chapters 1 through 24 is going to record all of the accusations from God to the people of Israel, all of the ways that they're sinning, they've broken the covenant, and also the warnings of what's going to come if they don't repent. And, and basically, that entailed that Israel has broken the covenant. Now, Jeremiah is going to describe this idolatry that they're committing as adultery. So when you see adultery, you think all kinds of forms of idolatry is spiritual adultery. And he's also going to accuse the leaders, that is the priests, the kings, and the prophets of his day, of all being corrupt. All being corrupt. You can't listen to them. You can't believe them. But the kings, of course, do. And this has, as a result, led to rampant sexual immorality in various forms and injustice against orphans, widows, and immigrants. And Jeremiah is going to specifically address all of those. And to get a taste of the message that Jeremiah preached to Israel, let's look at Jeremiah chapter 7. Would you flip over a few chapters to chapter 7? And look at verse 1. Yahweh gave another message to Jeremiah, and he said, Go to the entrance of the Lord's temple and give this message to the people. O Judah, listen to this message from Yahweh. Listen to it, all of you who worship here. This is what Yahweh of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Verse 3 now. Even now, if you quit your evil ways, I will let you stay in your own land. But don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by those who promise you safety simply because the Lord's temple is here. Yahweh's temple is here. Now, why would they be, why would they have a false hope in this? It's because at this time, the temple is the house for God's presence. As long as they turn around and look at that temple and the temple is standing, they believe that God is with them. So Jeremiah is addressing this, this wrong idea, this wrong belief that they've embraced. He says, you chant, Yahweh's temple's here. The Lord's temple, the temple, we have the temple. Verse five, but I will be merciful only if you stop your evil thoughts and deeds and start treating each other with justice. Only if you stop exploiting foreigners, orphans, and widows. Only if you stop your murdering. Only if you stop harming yourself by worshiping idols. We're going to see some of the idols they're worshiping uh, or similar to what those in the northern kingdom were worshiping. Baal is one of those false gods. Then I will let you stay in this land if you repent. I'll let you stay and I will give you the land that I promised to your ancestors forever. Look at verse 8. But don't be fooled into thinking that you will never suffer because the temple is here. It's a lie. Now, who was telling them that? That's all of the false prophets that stand opposed to Jeremiah's word. Verse 9, do you really think that you can steal and murder and commit adultery and lie and burn incense to Baal and all those other new gods of yours and then come here and stand before me in my temple and chant, we're safe. 
only to go right back to all those evils again. So basically what was happening is they were worshiping Yahweh on Sunday and false gods every other day of the week. And this is the word of the Lord. Verse 11, don't you yourselves admit that this temple which bears my name has become a den of thieves? Heard that before? Surely I see all the evil going on here. I, the Lord, have spoken. You'll, you'll recall in the final week of Jesus, when Jesus is on approach into Jerusalem, he weeps over the city, just as Jeremiah will do. And of course, Jesus also goes into the temple for a radical display of prophetic power. And notice, church, what does Jesus in Mark 11 what Jesus does here in Mark 11 is not a spontaneous outburst of anger, nor is Jesus beating people with a whip. <laughs> the text doesn't say that. Rather, it is a premeditated act of prophetic theater in the spirit of Jeremiah. Let me say that again. It is a premeditated act of prophetic theater in the spirit of Jeremiah. Jesus said, you have made my father's house essentially a hiding place and a home that is a religious cover for people who love their sin and aren't interested in being freed from it. This is essentially what Jesus is saying and what he means. This is an object lesson as we'll see with Jeremiah later on in the story. Jesus is embodying God's feeling toward his people and their tainted worship. He's pointing to the common, to the, rather the coming destruction of the temple. We often say he was cleansing the temple, though that's not really true. Jesus is shutting the place down. He's saying, this is what is coming because you refuse to repent. And that will come in A.D. 70. The Romans will tear it all down. So everyone understood, get this, they understood that Jesus was playing the role of the prophet Jeremiah. He was sort of reenacting what had happened about 500 years before him. In other words, to bring it home to us in our own day, you cannot pretend to be true worshipers on Sunday morning when you run with the crowd Monday through Saturday. When you chase after idols, seeking to get your life and your purpose from, th from things outside of God, away from, and apart from God. You can't, you can't do this while you exploit your neighbor. You can't worship God and take advantage of your neighbor. You can't worship God and call evil good and good evil throughout the week. And you can't pretend that the scriptures and the Lord himself is okay with your sins. This is what Jesus is saying. This is what Jeremiah said. So it's important to see that these similarities between Jeremiah and Jesus are, are very real because it sheds light and makes a whole lot more sense when, for example, you hear this. Matthew chapter 16. You remember Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi and it's on the border of Israeli territory and Gentile territory at the foot of, of Mount Hermon, at, at the front of a cave that was dedicated to pagan idolatry. It's actually where the springs came out that fed the Jordan River down to the Sea of Galilee. It's also believed to be the place where when the angels fell to earth, they fell at the base of this mountain. 
This says a whole lot about what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 16. He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Remember, he sent them out on mission. They come back, they're reporting all the stories of amazing things that they did, the miracles that they did in Jesus' name. And then Jesus says, but who do people say that I am? When you talk to people, you preach, you did miracles, who do they say? Who do they believe that I am? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist. You may be wondering, well, how could that be? John the Baptist is dead. They don't believe in reincarnation. <laughs> this is the idea that Jesus is, his, uh, maybe this isn't actually Yeshua of Nazareth, but it's actually, you know, it's like the Elvis sightings. You still believe he, he's still alive. Maybe he's John the Baptist. Others say it's Elijah. Remember the prophet we already covered. And then still others say Jeremiah. Why Jeremiah? Well, we've already seen Jesus look a lot like Jeremiah already, and he's going to continue to do that. And so Jesus said, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered his great confession, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And of course, Jesus goes on to say, that God himself has revealed this to Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Some people believe Jesus is standing on a rock where pagan sacrifices had been, had been uh, given here at the, at the entrance to what was to believe to be the underworld, Hades, or what we call hell. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? As he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against my kingdom. Jesus is picking a fight with the spiritual realm. Back to Jeremiah's story. In Jeremiah 18, we read a passage that's likely familiar to many of us. Jeremiah is walking through the marketplace and God calls his attention to a particular shop. And God says, Jeremiah, I'm like this potter. Look at the potter. My people are like the clay that the potter has in his hands. I want to fashion them for good. And I can do a lot with them despite the sins of the past. But this clay has a will of its own. And if they fight against the formation of my hands and they don't repent, then I'll be forced to crush them again into a lump of clay. And so Jeremiah relays this message, but the people say, don't waste your breath, you blasphemer. We'll continue to live as we want. This is what the text says. So Jeremiah convenes Israel's leaders in the valley of Hinnom, known as Gehenna in Jesus' day right? The place of burning, the place that's also used as a metaphor for hell. This is a place in the Old Testament where children had been sacrificed to Baal when God's people had embraced that idolatry. And he holds up a piece of pottery, Jeremiah does, representing Israel. This is after he comes from the potter's house, right? Holds up this piece of pottery saying, this is you. And he slams it down onto the ground, breaking it into pieces. And Jeremiah proclaims that the valley would become a place to dump all the slaughtered Israelites because they have refused to come to their senses and repent of their sins. And then soon after, Jeremiah expresses his honest feelings about his calling because nobody is repenting. Nobody is listening to his words, and, and he, he seemingly has an ineffective ministry, and his efforts to persuade Israel to repent and live are going nowhere. Look at Jeremiah chapter 20, verse, beginning with verse 7. 
You can just really hear Jeremiah's heart as he's going to kind of waver back and forth between despair and hope and trust in Yahweh and then regretting that he was even born. Oh, Yahweh, you misled me. I allowed myself to be misled. You are stronger than I am and you've overpowered me. Now I am mocked every day. Everyone laughs at me because of my words. I speak and the words, they, they burst out violence and destruction. Like, doom and, and gloom, I shout. This is what Jeremiah is saying. So these messages from Yahweh have made me a household joke. But if I say I'll never mention the Lord or speak his name. So he's saying, you could get, get into Jeremiah's mind here. He's thinking, so I really don't want to talk. I don't want to say anything anymore. I don't want to speak the words that Yahweh has given me. But he says, when I think this way and I feel this way, his word, it burns in my heart like a fire. It's like a fire in my bones. I cannot shut up about it. I can't keep it to myself. I'm worn out trying to hold it in, Jeremiah says. And I can't. I can't do it. I can't do it. Look at this. He says, I've heard the many rumors about me. They call me the man who lives in terror. They threaten, if you say anything, we will report you. Even my old friends, they're watching. Old friends, right? His old friends are watching him, waiting for a fatal slip. He will trap himself, they say, and then we will get our revenge on him. Now, that sounds a lot like the religious leaders in Jesus' day, doesn't it? Just wait, he'll slip up. But Yahweh stands beside me like a great warrior. Notice his faith now coming into play. And then, and then he elaborates on this as he, Jeremiah has faith. And look how, how so often like our own prayers. Look at verse 14, he once again returns. Yet I curse the day I was born. May no one celebrate the day of my birth. I curse the messenger who told my father, good news, you have a son. Let me be destroyed like the cities of old that the Lord overthrew without mercy. Terrify him all day long with battle shouts and so forth. He says, verse 18, why was I ever born? My entire life has been filled with trouble, sorrow, and shame. But does Jeremiah run? Does Jeremiah hide? Does Jeremiah quit? No, he does not. Jeremiah is brutally honest. We, we need to notice this. And I imagine, as I can somewhat relate to Jeremiah at various times of my ministry, that he is wondering, maybe I'm the false prophet. This doesn't seem to be the message that everybody else is speaking. This doesn't be, seem to be the message that people want to hear. Maybe I'm the false prophet. And one thing is for sure, when you look at Jeremiah chapter 20 here in this, this prayer, which is really a complaint to God, that Jeremiah is no doubt a willing hostage to his vocation, a willing hostage to his vocation. By the way, if you're interested in a good book on Jeremiah, I want to highly recommend Eugene Peterson's book, Run with the Horses, Run with the Horses, The Quest for Life at Its Best. And what Eugene Peterson does here is talk about life and meaning and purpose, how to live a full life as he reflects on the story of Jeremiah. And the title of the book is based on Jeremiah 12, verse 5, which says, this is God speaking, So, Jeremiah, if you're worn out in this foot race with men, what makes you think that you can race against horses? And if you can't keep your wits during times of calm, what's going to happen when troubles break loose like the Jordan in flood? And at this point, Chronicles will record that Jeremiah sends a prophetic word on a scroll to King Jehoiakim, 
saying that invaders from the north, which is Babylon, Babylon's not going to cut through the desert. All the enemies of Israel come up around and from the north. And he says they're coming and they're going to destroy Jerusalem. And this is what the message on the scroll says. And what does the king do? He tears it up into pieces and he burns it in the fire. So Jehoiakim refuses to listen. And soon after, when Babylon fails to invade Egypt, he switches Israel's allegiance back to Pharaoh. And this is going to infuriate Nebuchadnezzar. And so he'll lay siege to Jerusalem. He kills Jehoiakim along with his high-ranking officials, leaving his body exposed in the hot summer sun. And then Nebuchadnezzar takes the first wave of exiles to Babylon and makes Jehoiakim king, and he's about 18 years old, and his, his reign only lasts three months. So this, there's three waves of exiles into Babylon, probably in the first wave that went Daniel and Ezekiel, who are other contemporaries of Jeremiah. They're just younger, and, and their ministries will be lived out in the land of exile in Babylon. And so notice what's happening here. Jehoiakim, king, 18 years old, reigns only three months because of more Israelite rebellion. Nebuchadnezzar comes back. Jehoiakim surrenders and they take a second wave of Israelites back to Babylon. And then he makes Zedekiah king and Zedekiah is going to be the last king of Israel and warns Zedekiah, look, if this happens again and I have to come back, I am going to level Jerusalem. I'm going to tear down the walls. I'm going to tear down your temple. So if you want to keep your head, you better keep everybody in line. And then in Jeremiah 27, we read that God tells Jeremiah, as prophets often do, they sort of embody their message. They want to give a a visible picture of their message. And so Jeremiah locks a yoke around his neck to symbolize Israel's coming bondage to Babylon. As you might expect, the the ruling elite, they don't like this very much. This visible reminder, Jeremiah walking around, right? Even if he doesn't speak, his very presence is communicating his message. And as you you can see at this point, and you can read in, in the story, Hananiah is one of the false prophets in Zedekiah's court. And Hananiah sees Jeremiah doing this, and it's like almost like he hops up out of his chair real fast and runs over, putting his hand on Jeremiah and said, I just received a word from the Lord. And Hananiah tells them that in two years they would throw off the oppression of Babylon. Yahweh has declared it. And Jeremiah tells Hananiah that he would die because he's encouraged the people to believe lies and rebel against Yahweh's divine purposes. And he did die a couple months later. And you know, you think things like that would get people to say, oh, maybe Jeremiah's telling the truth. But it never seems to work. Never seems to work. Reminder to us that not everyone who speaks for the Lord or says they have a word from the Lord actually does. In chapter 29, we read a familiar passage. We're not going to read, but you can turn and look there. Uh, Part of that passage is a familiar one to us. I plans to prosper you, to give you hope and a future. This is part of Jeremiah's letter to the first waves of exiles in Babylon. He wants to encourage them, but also remind them that this is punishment because of their sins. He tells the exiles to settle in 
to start families, to find jobs, and adjust your thinking to exile thinking. You're not going to leave for a while. He says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city and the people there. And he says the exile is going to last 70 years, but God will bring you back. And as you might imagine, this is very hard for Israel to process and believe. In their mind, they're thinking, how could God let this happen? I mean, what about the line of David? What about all the promises? And everything really is coming to this. What about those covenant promises? Yeah, what about that covenant, we should be asking. You see, the covenant is a two-way, two-way street. It was always that way, going back to Moses. The word of Yahweh was always, if you do this, then I will do this. But if you do this, then this is what's going to result, right? This is always the nature of the covenant. And Israel entered into that covenant with Yahweh willingly. And so Israel couldn't keep their end of the agreement with this old covenant, and so the Lord makes plans for a new covenant. Listen to what Jeremiah prophesies in Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning with verse 31. Jeremiah says, the day is coming, says Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says Yahweh. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them. I will write them on their hearts. Notice this is a spirit thing. I will be their God. They will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbor, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord for everyone from the last and the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord. I will forgive their wickedness. I will never again remember their sins. And we need here, folks, to hear the words of Jesus in the upper room at the Last Supper. This is the blood of the new covenant. Jesus is referencing Jeremiah 31 verse 31 through 34. And then in chapter 32, get this, in wartime and impending doom, it's even closer now. God tells Jeremiah while he's in prison and in chains, buy a field in his hometown of Anatoth. Now, can you imagine that? It's like buying some property on the beach of Normandy. This is what God tells Jeremiah to do. And so once again, symbolizing something visible for the people to see. It's a sign of hope, you see, that God would someday restore and he would remain faithful to his people when it's all said and done. In his book, Run With Horses, Eugene Peterson writes, hope acts on the conviction that God will complete the work that he's begun. Even when the appearances, especially when the appearances oppose it. That's the way hope works. In Jeremiah 37 and 38, the leaders of Israel, they've had enough of Jeremiah's preaching. They've already thrown Jeremiah in a dungeon, and the last king, Zedekiah, brings Jeremiah out to ask him if he has a word from Yahweh. And Jeremiah at first doesn't want to give him a word. He says, you know, if I tell you, you're, you're probably going to kill me, so I'm not going to say anything. He says, he promises, oh, I won't do that. I won't kill you. Please tell me, do you have a word from the Lord? He knows his time is running out. 
And Babylon is coming back to finish the job, but he doesn't have the backbone, you see. He doesn't have the backbone and the courage to stand up to his false prophets and to the crowd of people who want to hear what they want to hear. As Paul said, their itching ears want to hear. And so he doesn't have the courage to do it. He doesn't have the courage to trust God and to do what Jeremiah tells him to do, which is to repent of his sins, to surrender to Babylon so his life and the rest of Israel will be spared. And this time they throw Jeremiah into a deep, muddy cistern to die of starvation. Put him in a cistern. We can't hear his sermons there. Put him in a cistern to die. And thankfully, Jeremiah, Jeremiah has some friends. Abed-Melech, which literally means servant of the king, is an Ethiopian eunuch in this story in Zedekiah's court and a friend and a believer in Jeremiah's message. And he convinces King Zedekiah to let him rescue Jeremiah from the cistern. And he comes to aid the faithful prophet just as the North African man did with Jesus on the way to the cross. Abed-Melech gathers a bunch of men, about 30, the text says, to pull Jeremiah out of the pit. That's a deep pit. And Jeremiah is freed, at least for a little while, until he's shackled one more time before the final siege and fall of Jerusalem. In the final chapter, Jeremiah 52, we read about the destruction of Jerusalem, her walls, her temple, the exile of everyone but the poor who could be left behind to work the fields. Zedekiah is allowed to live and he's taken back as a trophy to Babylon, but not before his sons, his heirs to the throne, are killed right in front of him. And his eyes gouged out. That's the last thing he would see. Oh, the consequences of sin and our refusal to repent. Jeremiah's words had finally come to pass. But folks, we can be sure that Jeremiah finds no satisfaction in any of this. We can see it in his behavior. If he receives any comfort, it's only in knowing that he did in fact hear from Yahweh and he is in fact a true prophet. Hard to imagine this is the only solace that Jeremiah will receive. Jeremiah weeps over Jerusalem. We can read some of his laments in the book of Lamentations. While Jeremiah has shown favor by Nebuchadnezzar for his attempts to help Babylon in the siege, that's the way, that's the way Nebuchadnezzar saw it. Isn't that the way the world thinks? You know, the people of God, they don't want to hear it. And Jeremiah is simply saying, I'm just telling you what God told me. They think he's anti-Israel. And then Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's pro-Babylon. Jeremiah seems to have found a third way. While Jeremiah is shown favor by Babylon, he's eventually taken against his will to Egypt. He chooses to stay, but some of his friends force him against his will to go to Egypt, and he continues to faithfully proclaim the word of the Lord. Lastly, I'd like to read an extended quote here from Peterson's book, Run with the Horses. Listen to what Eugene Peterson said. Jeremiah ends inconclusively. We want to know the end, but there is no end. The last scene of Jeremiah's life shows him as he had spent so much of his life preaching God's word 
to a contentious people. We want to know that he finally was successful so that if we live well and courageously, we also will be successful. Or we want to know that he was finally unsuccessful so that since a life of faith and integrity doesn't pay off, we can get on with finding another means by which to live. We get neither in Jeremiah. He doesn't get married and he doesn't get shot. In Egypt, the place he doesn't want to be with people who treat him badly. He continues determinedly faithful, magnificently courageous, heartlessly rejected, a towering life, terrifically lived. Finally, in the epilogue of chapter 52, we're left with a glimmer of hope for the time in the line of David. Remember the captured King Jehoiakim? You remember him, the 18-year-old, three months in office? He was taken to Babylon earlier in the story. He's shown kindness, we're told by Nebuchadnezzar. He ends up eating at the table of the king and he's later released when God judges Babylon to the Persian Empire. And it's then that Jeremiah's final prophecy is fulfilled. The line of David is preserved the line that would give us Jesus of Nazareth. Wow. What can we learn from Jeremiah's story? Well, here are a few theological lessons, just a few takeaways that I see in the text. We can see that Jeremiah was reluctant to answer his call, but he was faithful to God, even in his darkest moments. You see, being honest and real with God can help us persevere and grow our faith. Remember that. Remember that when you feel like Jeremiah. We also see that the crowd will often believe lies and go along with evil rather than admit the truth and repent. Folks, be leery of the crowds. Be leery when everyone is going after something together. It will always be the case until kingdom comes that the gospel will not be popular. It is not what people want to hear, but it's what we need to hear. It does not tickle the ears. It does not sit well with the flesh, but it is the truth of God. As Exodus 23 verse 2 said, do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. Another lesson we see is that being faithful to God will result in persecution. This isn't just an Old Testament thing. Paul said this to his Padawan learner, Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, in fact, Paul said, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone, including Americans, who decide to follow Jesus. Amen. Like Jeremiah, we all need faithful friends. Another lesson we see. And Jeremiah was not alone. Even though he felt isolated at times, even though he was thrown in prison and a cistern left to die, he had friends. He had friends like Baruch. He had friends like Abed-Melech. Look around you. Do you see any faithful friends? 
We also see hope and God's good future can sustain us. Listening to Sandra's uh, testimony earlier made me think of Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 18. Our, Our current sufferings can't compare, Paul says, to the glory that will be revealed in us. Be faithful, church. Be faithful. All of this is temporary. The kingdom is coming. And lastly, as we've seen with all characters in our series, Jeremiah was both a saint and a sinner. He's tempted to despair. He's reluctant to accept his call even. He despises the day he was born. He He tells it to God like it is, but yet he stays faithful. Yet he was a saint. Before we close, here are a few questions for reflection and to help us to respond. Can you see yourself in Jeremiah? Can you, can you relate to his story in some way in the life that God is calling you to live? Where do you see the connection points? How is the Holy Spirit speaking to you through this message? And number two, where do you see the crowd going today? Where's the crowd going all the while saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. God's on our side. We're on the right side of history. Where's the crowd going? And ask yourself, are you going along with the mainstream to avoid hardships? Are you going along with the mainstream because you've not really taken the time to consider the word of the Lord? And then lastly, number three, Have you answered God's call and purpose for your life? What is it? Are you listening to his voice? Are you being faithful to God in his service? Brothers and sisters, if there was ever a biblical figure in the Old Testament who persevered despite the lack of success in ministry, it is the prophet Jeremiah. May we look, learn, and go and do likewise. Would you pray with me? Father, we are really blown away by this story. We're humbled. We're, we're, we're challenged, probably a little convicted. But also, Lord, encouraged to know that you don't forsake your servants. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us today that our ultimate reward is not in this life. Our ultimate reward is in knowing you and being counted as part of the sheep of your pasture. Holy Shepherd Jesus, we look to you now. Guide your sheep. Speak to your sheep. Love your sheep. Amen. Amen.